All right, we are in the book of Daniel, and because Daniel is uh, halfway, half of Daniel is a narrative, like a historical narrative. The other half of Daniel is a uh, is six chapters that have to do with prophecy. So because of that, I like to give you the backstory of where we are. The Israel, this is 600-ish BC is when Daniel begins, 605 BC. Israel has had numerous warnings from God about idolatry, about um, disobedience, about having other gods, and about conforming to the society around them, and they have ignored it. So God has allowed the Babylonian Empire to take over Israel. And they took with them somewhere between 50 and 75 um, young men, teenage guys. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are four of those boys. The rest of them we hear nothing about. So we assume that they were absorbed into the Babylonian culture. They've been brought there to learn and be sort of brainwashed into the pagan ways of Babylonia but not Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. They have not compromised with their uh, pagan surroundings, if you will. So we've seen Daniel has great gifts for interpreting dreams. And um, there's a king named Nebuchadnezzar who had a huge dream about a, a, a dream about a huge statue with a head of gold and various other parts of silver and bronze and iron. Uh, and they, that represented the various kingdoms that will of the world, of the Gentiles, man attempting to govern themselves. So um, he is the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar is told, of that statue, but there'll be other kingdoms after him. Nebuchadnezzar praises the God of Israel for revealing this to him and through Daniel, and yet he still builds a big idol 90 feet tall by nine feet wide, and asks that everybody worship it. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. And so they're thrown into a fiery furnace where a mysterious fourth person appears, which is, almost all scholars agree, at least an angel and almost certainly Christ before the manger, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Messiah, uh, the Son of God. Uh, pretty cool. So Daniel's rewarded um, for his um, prophecies and what have you, and he is elevated to be like prime minister of, of the kingdom of Babylonia, and even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, are also uh, elevated to high positions as well. So, um, uh, so let's see, he, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, oddly enough, a Gentile, writes most of chapter 4, of Daniel. And we won't reread the whole thing, but it is basically his testimony about how God humbled him and got a hold of him. And most scholars believe that he, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan Babylonian king, becomes a believer in the true God. Looking forward to the Messiah, certainly Daniel's been praying for him and talking to him, witnessing to him and what have you. So he has a dream in chapter four of a giant tree. Nobody can interpret it, so he calls Daniel in. The dream is that this tree is freakish. It's so big and awesome, reaching to the skies, and the branches create fruit and shade for all of the world, and 
uh, suddenly an order is given from an angel to chop down the tree and leave a stump and protect the stump and the branches are all scattered. Daniel tells in chapter four, tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. And this is a warning. So let's pick it up in, uh, in Daniel 4, verse 22. Those of you that are here in person, say amen so I know you're awake. Yeah, that was pretty good. All right. And those of you online, uh, wave or say amen. Beautiful. Good. Um, verse 22, he, he is interpreting the dream and he says, you're the tree to Nebuchadnezzar. You become great and strong, just like that tree. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. And he's going to reiterate in verse 23 that he saw somebody, uh, a holy one, saying, cut the tree down, destroy it. But notice the warning. Let him, this is the end of verse 25, of 23, sorry. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Notice it's changed from a tree to a him, meaning Nebuchadnezzar. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. God is giving Nebuchadnezzar a warning that if he doesn't repent and give glory to the God of Israel, who is sovereign, meaning totally in control, and that he gives kingdoms to whomever he wants, if he's not willing to humble himself and do that, God is going to put him out to pasture, so to speak. He's going to make him think he's an animal. We said last week, this is a real psychological disorder, boanthropy, where a person believes they're not only an animal, but an ox or a cow, and they actually are eating on all fours, eating grass and can't speak. And that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But this is the warning part. Um, so verse 24 is the interpretation. Notice the drenched with dew, meaning he's going to live outdoors, uh, live with the wild animals, until seven times pass in chapter seven and elsewhere in Daniel, when you see times, it means years, seven years of humility for this great king. Uh, if he won't uh, bow down to the real God. Uh, verse 25, he's interpret interpreting the uh, vision. You'll be driven away from people, live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the most high, that's a name for God, is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. That verse is the one of the main themes of the whole book of Daniel. God's sovereign. Not only for kings, but in your life and in my life, that God calls the shots. So, Verse 27 is the appeal. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Daniel's going to give him advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Now we learned something we, hadn't, we didn't know before. He has been so prideful and with such a big ego, he's oppressing the poor, looking down his nose at them not knowing that he's been given gifts and he's supposed to bless others with them. Um, it may be then your prosperity will continue. Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. 12 months later, he's got a whole year to repent. And does he? No. 12 months later, let's see how his ego is doing. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon 
I have built as the royal residence by my power and for the glory of my majesty. I think he's spraining his arm, patting himself on the back, right? Even as the words, verse 31, were on his lips, this is review from last week, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Keep in mind, God is so gracious and patient, but there comes a time when his patience is over and judgment comes, right? So he now he reiterates the dream. Verse 32, you'll be driven away from people, live with the wild animals. You're going to eat grass like the ox. Seven times or seven years are going to pass until you acknowledge, verse 32, the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he, God, wishes. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, living outdoors, until his hair had grown like the eagles. That's not the rock band. It's the animal. The eagle's feathers, meaning long, matted, kind of, you ever see those Rastafarian guys that, you know, wash their hair every three years. Anyway, grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. We said last week, Howard Hughes, toward the end of his life, was so nuts. Despite his success and money, he had real long nails, long hair, and was just kind of became a little insane or maybe a lot insane. Um, verse 34, now we resume the first person, I, Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of that period, meaning seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. That's all a cow can do, right? An ox. He just looked up in humility. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the most high. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar's been trying to be the one that will live forever. And he realizes it's not him, it's God that lives forever. For his, that's God's, dominion is an everlasting dominion. What's implied there is and mine is not. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are of no account. You ever read that verse where it's, God is no respecter of persons, right? All of us are of no account. We're dust, we're nothing compared to God, but he does, God does according to his will among the army of heaven, that's heaven, that dimension where God dwells, where the angels dwell, so he's sovereign in heaven over the angels and among the inhabitants of earth, that incorporates everything, doesn't it, heaven and earth, and no one can fend off his hand, no one can stop God's will, you can try, he tried, or say to God, what have you done? Now, there's sort of a double meaning there. The what have you done can be taken to mean somebody that's questioning God, right? Why have you made me this way? Why did you cause this calamity to help it happen to me? Why was I raised where I was raised or with whom I was raised? You can always feel sorry for yourself. You can't question God. He knows what he's doing, right? But the other thing is Nebuchadnezzar had been questioning God in this way, what have you done compared to me? 
I built this whole empire. He doesn't know it was given to him. Listen, everything you and I have, everything, every gift, every talent, every moment, every heartbeat, every breath is a gift, right? Um, years ago, not that many, but three years ago, yeah, um, I had a year before that of extreme hip pain, okay? And I had a hip replacement. You want to be humbled, have a body part replaced, okay? And then you start walking with a walker and then a cane and limping and pain and swelling. And when I was fully restored or good enough, I remember walking up and down the stairs, which I couldn't do for two weeks. And every step I would say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Sometimes in the morning, I wake up a little kind of stiff and have to walk and thank you, thank you every step. Once you and I realize God is sovereign, then our sanity, if you will, returns to us. What is insanity? Listen, it is a threefold thing. Insanity is not understanding who you and I are. We're sinners in need of a savior. We are imperfect. We can't save ourselves. We need God, okay? Correct impression of who and what we are. Number two, sanity means restoring the knowledge that he, God, is real and that he's sovereign and that he's in control. And thirdly, sanity is a proper view of other people horizontally and that we are to love each other, not look down our noses like Nebuchadnezzar was at other people. He, what you see him doing, eating grass for seven years, in a sense, is not new, meaning he was already that crazy for thinking he was so great, for thinking God wasn't real, for thinking other things were God, for thinking he had established this great kingdom. It was all given to him, and it could be just as easily taken away. Now he gets it, and he's totally, totally humbled. Um, verse 36, my reason return to me. What does the Old Testament say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what class? Wisdom. If you don't start with an, a, a reverence and an awe for God, A-W-E, then you are liable to not have a sound mind or have wisdom. Um, let's see. Uh, at that time, my reason returned to me, verse 36, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the honor of my kingdom and my state councils and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. He means in his role and surpassing greatness was added to me. We said last week, a kingdom where there's a power vacuum, meaning the king is in what, where's Nebuchadnezzar, the king? Oh, he's grazing on the north 40 he's what he's incapacitated in that kind of a political situation you know don't you it wouldn't take very long somebody would have a coup they would take over the vice president somebody would be assassinated god protected the stump which is nebuchadnezzar himself for those seven years and he gets to be restored nobody attacked from another country total miracle of god um Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. Do you see the humility? Took seven years to wake him up, right? That's a lot of grass. For all his works, God's works, 
are true and his ways are just. Absolutely fair. You ever talk to people that say about God, you know what I want from God? I want what I deserve. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. We deserve judgment from God, right? Everything that we have that's good is undeserved. That's what grace is all about. Mercy is different. Mercy is God withholding bad stuff that we do deserve, punishment. And you see both of those in Nebuchadnezzar. I praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. All his works are true. His ways are just. And the punchline, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. If we have time when we're done, I put together a checkup, not a medical checkup, a pride checkup. Because the danger in reading this or any part of the Bible is that you can read it as third person. That guy got humbled, right? But listen, each of us might need humbling, right? Do we have our own little kingdom, house, talents, gifts, achievements, PhDs? You know what PhD stands for, right? Piled higher and deeper. But anyway, do we glory in anything that God ought to get the glory for? Secondly, there's a different kind of pride. Have you ever heard of this? Spiritual pride. What's that? That's this. I'm a Christian. He's not. I'm so much smarter than him. Why can't he see that Jesus is Lord? I guess I'm more spiritual. I guess I studied harder and prayed harder. Listen, you know what Romans says? Unto each, Romans 12, unto each is given a measure of faith. Do you know where you got your faith? I built it up myself. No, God gave you your faith. He called you. He drew you. He gave you faith. So there's a spiritual pride against people that are unbelievers. There's a spiritual pride against people that are in cults or in other world religions, which are false, right? All the other gods are untrue that people worship. They're made up by men, just like the pagan gods they were worshiping in Babylon. So we see Nebuchadnezzar, virtually every commentator and scholar agrees, this guy became a believer in the true God. From being a pagan polytheist, meaning many gods, he became a Christian, not a Christian, but a believer in God, okay? But wait, someone's going to say if they're thinking, wait a minute. This guy had the biggest ego on earth, probably. I'll grant you that. He oppressed the poor, we read earlier. Yes. He was greedy. Yes. He was prideful, and pride comes before a fall. We saw that, didn't we? So some people might have a problem with this. After all that sin and pagan worship, you mean to tell me he can just pray this prayer, say these things, humble himself, and just like that, it's all erased and forgiven? Yeah, somebody said, yep. <laughs> Very good. Let's move on. No, listen, listen, Daniel has been praying for this guy. Daniel has probably been witnessing to this guy about his God, right? And when we hear that, we think, okay, Yahweh, yeah, I get it. The Jewish God, God, the father, right? 
But listen, the whole idea of Christ, of the Messiah, is not a Gentile creation. It's Jewish. It goes back to Genesis 3, to Isaiah 7 and 9, and all over the Old Testament. Certainly Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. It's all over. Do you think Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about God the Father without telling him in the future there's coming a Messiah? So to answer your question, if you had one, how can he just get forgiven like that? It just doesn't seem fair. He needs to pay. Maybe he needs to go to purgatory and pay in hell for, you know, five or 10 years. And then, listen, I believe just as we look back in time to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, he, Nebuchadnezzar, true believer in God, was looking forward in time to when that Messiah would show up, pay for the sins of Nebuchadnezzar and Joe and everyone else here, Bob and everyone, right? And die on a cross in our place. So Nebuchadnezzar, yes, absolutely is forgiven. And God honors the humble and exalts them. And he humbles those who exalt themselves. We saw that with eating grass. Where's the grace, you say? God could have easily just snuffed out Nebuchadnezzar, right? Would anybody think, well, that's not fair. He could have killed him. He gives him seven years of grass diet, right? Vegan, is that vegan? And humility in order to bring him to his knees, first eating grass, and then to his knees in worship and praise for the real God. What a beautiful thing, right? Object lesson for you and me. Who do you know that's prideful? Who do you know that's not a believer? Who do you know that uh, needs to be humbled? Don't you be the one that looks down the nose with your own spiritual pride. Pray for that person and know that God may be patient enough to bring that person to a saving relationship. We can't, we don't have time, but I bet if we went through the room and we all told our stories, there'd be some prideful, sinful idiots in this room besides me, right? And yet, by the grace of God, here we all are. Pretty amazing. Um, he's able to humble those who walk in pride, and he sure did with Nebuchadnezzar, but he doesn't always do it that way. We just don't know um, what he'll do. Um, do you remember in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, James and John come to Jesus? Do you remember this? In the parallel account, they come with mom, their mother, their brothers, and they say to Jesus, we'd like you to grant us whatever we wish. And Jesus says, well, what do you want? And they say, we want you to give us the seats of honor in heaven next to you, one on your left, one on your right. You remember that? Talk about pride, right? So it's an age old game, this whole um, pride thing. The lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned also applies to the Jews who ironically are in captivity in Babylon, why? because of uh, idolatry, right? And spiritual adultery, they need to be humbled as well. And eventually they get out of that uh, captivity and go back. Um, when reason returns to an insane sinner, Nebuchadnezzar, you, me, it results in worship, a full understanding of who he is, who we are, who others are, and our condition. I'm just reading my notes here before we move on to chapter five. Um, so he acknowledges God is the one that's sovereign. He gives kingdoms to whomever he wishes. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We talked about that and that. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. In Proverbs 6, there's a list of sins that God hates. Anybody know what number one is on the top? Not 10, but six, seven. A prideful look. Number one. Here he's dealing with somebody with that. And the last thing I'll mention about him is, isn't it beautiful that Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith miraculously, and what does he do? Tells other people. He writes a chapter in the book of Daniel. Pretty amazing. He could have kept it to himself. Uh, in a pagan society, he might have been looked on as a fool, but he knows the truth. So he, when we believe, we are to tell others the good news. Amen. Um, oh, should we do that now or should we wait? Now let's do it now real quick. It's time for your pride checkup. Let me get my glove on and okay. And my pride checkup. Some hints that you, you and I might be dealing with pride. Okay, listen. Fault finding being judgmental. Are you the kind of person that's always pointing the figures at other per people? What I've learned about prideful people is they're always trying to move you and I down a peg or two so that they can appear better. So they have to find fault. Prideful people find fault. They're judgmental. A harsh spirit. Those um, who speak of other people's sins with contempt often they're sinning the same way as that person, but it's a way to elevate themselves as being holier than thou. Pride checkup. Uh, let's see. Defensiveness. A prideful person, if you mention, well, you know, you, you did that wrong, they instantly get defensive. Well, it wasn't my fault. You see, she told me what to do, and I was just following orders, and it's always somebody else's fault. Um, presumption before God. A prideful person prays as a last resort. Humble person prays first, right? A prideful person says, I got this. I'll call you if I need you to God. A prideful person is desperate for attention to validate how great I am kind of thing. Nebuchadnezzar built monuments to his own greatness, um, Several world leaders, by the way, have named themselves so-and-so the great, right? Alexander the great. Um, neglecting others. Pride is so selfish. It has to do with only uh, dealing with your own needs. And a prideful person does not see the need of others and try to meet it. Um, we already talked about that. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. This is the psalmist inviting God to put the microscope on his soul and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's an invitation, John 15, prune my tree. Take away the pride. Um, shall we move on? Chapter five. Are you still awake? Say amen. That's kind of weak. Chapter five. Okay. A little background. Okay. Because this book just moves right through history. Several years have passed. Nebuchadnezzar has died, presumably, and gone to heaven. Since then, um, I won't, it's in the notes, but 
I'll just do a really brief thing. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, okay? Um, his son, and I'm not kidding, this is his name, this is not an adjective, his son, Evil Murodoc, evil, like evil can evil, no, Evil Murodoc <laughs> took over and ruled for two years until Neraglasser, his brother-in-law, assassinated him. Okay, Neraglasser ruled for four years and died a natural death. His son, I'm not going to attempt it, it starts with an L, Lab Laboro Sorshad, I'm going to say, um, who was only a child and had diminished mental capacity, ruled for nine months, and then was beaten to death by a bunch of conspirators. So the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar isn't doing very well by this time, right? Okay, following him comes Nabonidus, and he rules, but he hands it off to Belshazzar, who we meet in verse 1 of chapter 5. Um, it's Nabonidus' eldest son. Nabonidus is still really the king, but he's living in Arabia toward the end of his life and has handed out the kingdom to his son, Belshazzar. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. So... Um, we're going to see if Nebuchadnezzar's influence, he's become a believer in the true God, but has his influence affected Babylonia, that kingdom, or uh, are they still as pagan and egotistical as ever? Verse 1, chapter 5, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Um, uh, German archaeologists have discovered where this probably took place. It was a ballroom that was probably twice as big as the room we're in, maybe three or four times. Just a giant place. Plaster walls. You say, why are you mentioning that? It's going to come up in the story. You know why? Because it's historical. The Bible's true. Um, big feasts like this were very common. Listen, besides incredible food and extreme amounts of alcohol, this is not only a drunken fraternity party, this is an orgy, okay? These kind of parties in those pagan societies, it was very normal that it would be an orgy as well of sexual debauchery of all kinds. It is also not just a party, it is a religious um, event where they're worshiping their gods we're about to see. And the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar is this. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. Belshazzar was not only prideful, not only a pagan, but he was an in-your-face pagan, defiant against God, brazen in his idolatry and in his ego. So there's a huge feast. Okay, the backstory is this. Babylon was built in such a way that it was considered the most impregnable city in the world. Armies could not get in. They had an elaborate water system, and they, they had several layers of 70-foot thick, 90-feet tall walls. Between the walls were moats with water, because the Euphrates River ran right through the middle of Babylon, uh, Babylon the city. You with me so far? So they've got moats. They've got multiple 
um, walls. They have giant gates made out of thick bronze, okay, that were always locked. This particular night, most scholars think Belshazzar knows what I'm about to tell you, which is as the big parties going on, the uh, Persians and the Medes, the Medo-Persian is supposed to be the next empire that takes over after Babylon. They have come a long way to take over the city of Babylon, okay? But you said it's impregnable, but the Medes and the Persians are so smart. They've already taken over a bunch of their territory. They're coming for the city. They built a dam and diverted the water from the Euphrates River so that the moats and the river itself dried up in the middle of the city. They, the Persian, Medo-Persian army, <clears throat> excuse me, is right outside the gates of the city as this party's going on. You say, why aren't they getting the armies together? Belshazzar should order the. He's so confident that this city, by the way, Belshazzar means Baal or Bel, the pagan god, is my protector or has protected me. Not so, right? Because no such thing as Baal is not a real god. He's having this party in defiance to show if they think they're going to get in. Amazingly, historians record that the big bronze gates, several of them, were left, listen, unlocked. Isn't that unbelievable? Coincidence? It was time, right? This guy's more egotistical than, uh, than his grandfather, which is Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get to that. Um, so there's this huge party. They are just drunk, partying. It's an orgy. It's a very, very pagan kind of a bash, if you will. While he, uh, let me let me preface verse two. When Nebuchadnezzar, when they took over Israel as a thumbing your nose at the God of Israel, they confiscated from the temple in Jerusalem, the golden chalices and bowls and other implements that were holy, were supposed to be used only for worship of the true God. You with me so far? They confiscated them and sort of put them on a shelf in a museum to show we're, we're more strong than their God. Our God's bigger than your God, right? Kind of thing. Until now. It, what's implied is they haven't been used. They've just been stolen to show, look, we took the Jews over and their God was no match for us. Look, this is from the temple. Verse two, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, which means ancestor, there's no word for grandfather, but that's who he is. He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, which his father, meaning grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, meaning Belshazzar, his wives and his concubines could drink out of them. These are religious um, bowls and chalices and cups and things that as a way of thumbing his nose at the Jewish God, they're going to blaspheme that God by drinking, getting drunk, drinking wine out of those same um, implements, cups, bowls, and what have you. So this is really in your face paganism. This guy's much more bold, even less humble than Nebuchadnezzar was, if that's possible. Um, let's see, what's the time? No, we're doing good. Um, verse three, 
Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives, plural, and his concubines drank out of them. They're already pretty drunk. Now they're drunker. They drank the wine, verse 4, and here it comes. And praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. There's an order there. Did you notice in terms of value, gold's more valuable than silver, which is more valuable than bronze, iron, wood, stone, etc. All those gods, listen, are idols, I-D-O-L-S, meaning what? They're nothing, right? They bow down to things that are totally false. They're man-made. We have said in this Bible study, though, that Satan wants worship, okay? And he, Satan, doesn't care whether you call him Satan and bow down to him, which most people don't, Satan worshipers, you know, or whether you worship money or fame or power or things that are gold or silver. He stands behind them and just says, bring it on and receives the worship, right? This is a satanic party in Babylon. The army of the Persians and the Medes is right outside the door. And he's so bold He's throwing a, a drunken party. Um, but to make the, the um, idolatry even worse, they're praising, they're thanking the gods of gold and silver. You want to make God angry? Praise some other god. Verse 5, suddenly, and I, I got to say, God has a sense of humor. Amen? There's this big party. Where they, where they excavated this room, they discovered that there was an indentation in the center wall, in a central place in the room, on one wall, an indentation where the king would likely sit. So he'd be visible to all. It was elevated on a platform, and everybody could look at him, and the walls were plaster. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Now, this is unprecedented. Amen? This doesn't happen every day, right? Have you heard the saying, the writing on the wall, or you need to read the writing on the wall? This is where it comes from, right? Nebuchadnezzar is drunk. He's having a party. You can hear the din of the crowd. Everybody is loud and laughing, and it's just a wild time. And all of a sudden, uh, what did you say, Ken? Oh, I said Nebuchadnezzar. I'm so sorry. Uh, Belshazzar. Sorry. Thank you. Appreciate it. Strike that from the record, Your Honor. Okay. Belshazzar is having this party. It's a loud party. And if you can imagine, it goes completely silent at this moment because there's a hand, just a hand, not an arm, fingers and a hand writing on a wall. This, God has a sense of humor, right? Many people have thought, you know, if God would just give me a miracle right on my wall, I'd believe it. You think so? I don't think so. The problem with seeing miracles is, you know what you want? One more. And then I need one more, and I need, want to videotape it this time. Okay. 
fingers are writing from a human hand on a wall. The question is, what are they writing and in what language? We'll talk about that in a second. Then the king's face became pale. Watch how that gets repeated. Okay, face. You ever see somebody that's been drinking a lot? Generally, not everybody, get red in the face, right? That healthy drunk glow. Yeah, right. Now he's the blood has drained out of his head. Okay, we're going to find out in a second that he doesn't even know what it says. But it's so freaky that there's a hand writing on the wall, number one, that it already scares him. It would be nothing more than a curiosity were it not for Romans 2, which says that every human being has a conscience. And whether he's willing to admit it or not, this guy knows he's evil. Okay, and I think he sees the writing on the wall, recognizes its supernatural origin, and he can't believe it. And he is conscience is is getting the better of him. Um, okay, the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. He's watching. Then the king's face became pale. Verse six, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints loosened, and his knees began knocking together. Can you picture the scene? This is not because he's drunk, although probably contributed, right? It's he's so afraid and knocking knees together. His hips are coming out of joint. Um, he is so afraid. Hip joints loosened. Knees began knocking together. The king, so now it's gotten very quiet in the room because the king yells in verse 7. He calls aloud. That means he shouts Bring in the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. Remember all those magicians, those astrologers, those um, seers and sorcerers from previously, whenever somebody had a vision or a dream, and they can never figure out what it means, right, in this book. He calls for them. The king began speaking and said to the wise men of Babylon, who were brought in, anyone who can read this inscription on the wall and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with scarlet some translations have it really the word is purple meaning what royal color and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom what does that mean triumvirate in other words who were the other two his brother nabonidus by the way had come back hearing about the medo-persian army nabonidus went out to fight them and Belshazzar doesn't know it, but Nabonidus has already been captured this very night outside the gates. The army is right there, the invading army, which he thinks he's ruler number two. He's now ruler number one, but he's saying, whoever can tell me what this dream whoops, means will be um, third ruler, sort of like the vice vice president. I have to get up and get my notes now. Excuse me a moment, those of you online. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see that on the evening news. Um, and so he's gonna he's offering somebody great wealth, great power, and um, great honor if they can just tell him what it means. Pause. What does it say? Well, I'm gonna tell you, but this book is written, only book of the Old Testament written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. New Testament, mostly Greek. Old Testament, almost all Hebrew. This book is written in Aramaic. They spoke Aramaic. They could read Aramaic. Are the words in Aramaic? We don't know. 
There's a scholar that thinks they're in Hebrew. That's why he can't read them. There are scholars that think he's so drunk, he can't see the words. There are scholars that think he sees the words and can't interpret them. Okay. And there's only four words. Okay. So there has to be more meaning than just the four words. It's not even a sentence, if you will. Um, let's take our two minute break, which we always do at 10 minutes of and stretch our aging bodies, but don't go far. I'll see you in two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen and mute the microphone. I'll be back in two minutes. Resume. There we go. Okay. We're back in uh, Daniel chapter five in this strange story of fingers writing on a wall. So let's keep rolling here. Um, this is different than Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar got a warning and a year grace period to repent. He didn't repent. He became like an ox for seven years, but he finally repented. This is the writing on the wall, meaning it's been done. He, Dave just said judgment. Right on, Dave. You get an A, um, or at least an A minus. All right. Um, let's see. Where did we leave off? So the offer is made. If you can read it and explain it, the interpretation, you're going to be rich, have power, and have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, the kingdom has an hour or two left in it. It's no big deal. It's going to be over, you'll see in a second, in an hour or two at the most. Whoop-de-doo, make me, you know, You'd have heard a queen for a day. This is like king for an hour. Okay. Then, verse 8, all the king's wise men came in. This is the astrologers, the soothsayers, all those terms. You know, they call them Chaldeans as well. But they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. We haven't been told the words yet, but we will. So they can't, they tell them we don't know what it is. Okay. These are the same or possibly some of the same guys that couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar twice what his dreams meant, the tree and then the statue. Do you remember? And Daniel always comes into the rescue. He never comes in with them as one of them. He's always separate, if you notice. Then King Belshazzar was greatly, verse 9, alarmed. His face grew even more pale, a whiter shade of pale, for those of you who know 1960s music. Um, he became even more pale, and his nobles were perplexed. You see what atheism does? Makes you confused. It makes you, you think you know everything, and then you realize when a crisis comes, what am I going to do now? Don't you ever wonder, I always do, people that don't believe in God at all. I have two old friends from high school, college days that are total atheists. I always wonder you may go about your normal everyday life ignoring God, but what about in a crisis? Maybe because we're Christians, we're so used to, right? First thing you do, you look up to God, please help me. Please give me your peace, guide me, whatever it may be. Um, what do they do? What do they, who do they go to? Somebody, God forbid that they know dies suddenly. They just go, oh, well, uh, it just it blows my mind. Okay. Sorry. Um, Greatly alarmed. He's even more pale. Uh, verse 10. The queen, this is not his wife. Virtually every scholar thinks this is either Belsh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's wife 
his grandmother, or more likely his mother, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. You with me? This is his mother. Notice she comes in. She wasn't in there. Wasn't in the orgy, wasn't getting drunk. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, because they're all shouting, there's total confusion, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. This is a common greeting to pump the ego of this king. I'd like you all to address me that way from now on. Anyway, just kidding. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There it is again. It just cracks me up. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods, plural, in him. In the time of your father, meaning grandfather, ancestor, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods, supernatural wisdom. She's talking about Daniel, because you're out of options. All your little soothsayers and astrologers couldn't figure it out. You're magicians. She says, there's a guy in your kingdom. What's going on here? It is thought Daniel is somewhere in his late 80s at this point. Okay, he may have been retired. You know, somebody retired him, the new kings that came in, or um, uh, just wasn't that involved anymore in the government of Babylon at that age. So much so, you're going to find out that Belshazzar does not know who Daniel is, but the queen remembers. The queen remembers verbatim what Nebuchadnezzar says. said. Watch. There's a man in your kingdom, verse 11, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He was the number one guy in that category for finding out what dreams and visions mean. And you don't even know who he is. Um, he did this, verse 12, because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, similar name, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Here's her advice. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means. Okay? Don't forget the setting. Big party. Armies outside ready to take over the country and the city, um, but it's gone silent. The music has stopped like the scratch of a record. When you scratch, the, pull the needle off a record, those of you that know what a record is, you're old like me. Verse 13, so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles, meaning one of the Jews we took, my father the king brought from Judah? Are you him? He doesn't know him. Verse 14, I've heard that the spirit of the gods, plural, is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. He's kind of reiterating the situation. Verse 15, the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now, verse 16, I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing... Tell me what it means. You'll be clothed in purple, royal robe. I'm going to give you a really high up position in this kingdom in the last hour or two that we have left. Um, clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck as if money meant anything to Daniel. This is a godly man who has never 
compromised while he was in a foreign land with great pressure to compromise. And you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17, then Daniel answered the king. I love this. You may keep your gifts for yourself, right? Keep your petty gifts. It's all over. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. That stuff means nothing to me, he's saying. I live for heavenly reward, right? I live to hear the applause of heaven. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So he's saying, I know. I can read it. I can read the writing on the wall. Now, does he know it instantly? Did God reveal it to him? Was he praying while the king was talking? We don't know. But he knows now. Verse 18, your majesty, the most high God, singular, not gods. Get that out of your mind, king. The most high God, period, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar ended up understanding that. It was given to him. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't work hard for it. He didn't study hard and fight hard. It was given to him. Just like you, everything you have, it was given. Your father Nebuchadnezzar was given sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. What does that sentence mean? It means that for a time, Nebuchadnezzar had earthly sovereignty. He made those decisions. I want him to be spared, but him cut his head off. But see, that was all given to him. There was somebody sovereign over him that he never saw until he ate grass for seven years. Um, let's see. So verse 20, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. In case you forgot, he's giving you the, the story again. He's giving the king the story again. He was driven away from people, given the mind of an animal, lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven, means he lived outside, until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign. That word means rules, absolutely. When man rules, we have the saying we said last week, absolute power corrupts how, class? Absolutely, right? Goes too much to a one person's head. God is the one that really rules. Um, he's sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. We haven't taken a detour yet. Let's do that now. Grab, uh, turn to Romans 13. Keep your finger in uh, Daniel go to Romans 13. We're only going to be here a second. This verse, if you haven't read it or studied Romans, surprises a lot of people. But if you believe that God is sovereign, this shouldn't surprise you. Turn to Romans, so go past the four gospels, past Acts, come to Romans 13. This is a verse about submitting to human government. <clears throat> God created on earth 
a couple of institutions. One was the family and marriage. One woman, one man for wife, they have children, procreate, fill the earth and subdue it. Remember that? He also instituted the institution of human government. He never said, God didn't, that all human government will be perfect and fair and just and holy and good. As a matter of fact, how many governments have been those things, right? Some to varying degrees got better than others, right? But Romans 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there's no other authority except that which God has, what? Established. Okay, really spell it out for us, Paul. We're, we're slow people here. The authorities that exist have been established by God. You say, well, I didn't vote for Joe Biden and I don't like Joe Biden. According to this verse, who chose Joe Biden to be president? God. Who chose Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, uh, Pol Pot, um, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein? Who chose these idiots? God. That's what that verse says. Why did he not know that they were? Of course he knew. Sometimes nations get the government they deserve, right? In their own ignorance, in their own rebellion, whatever, sin, whatever it may be. Verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Um, okay, go back to Daniel. I just wanted to show you that God's in control. And sometimes in order to bring about his purposes, God has to allow certain people to take control. The overarching message of Daniel is that mankind wants to rule themselves and we aren't good at it. Okay. Why? Maybe we need to take more poli-sci classes like I did at San Jose State. No, it's because we're sinners, right? There's always payoffs in government and unfair things. And he goes to jail for something that she gets off doing uh, without punishment. And there's always unfairness because the overarching message of the Bible is the one sovereign ruler, that the one type of government that works the best is a democracy. No. Monarchy. No. Theocracy. You say, what's that? Theo, meaning God ocracy government or god's in control israel was set up that way and it didn't they didn't keep it right they wanted kings and rulers for themselves read the old testament okay so um let's go back to the text but i wanted you to see that god put nebuchadnezzar and this belshazzar in power uh for a reason they got the rulers they deserve these pagan multi-god worshipers um Go back to verse 21, the last part. Most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them, picking the rulers, anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, verse 22, his son, Nebuchadnezzar's ancestor, uh, descendant, sorry, have not humbled yourself. 
though you knew all this, he's heard the history from grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, relatives, historians. You haven't humbled yourself. Uh, instead, verse 23, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Boy, that is the wrong place to be, right? The wrong side of history. You set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had, now he's going to accuse him of something he did. Goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them, desecrating these holy instruments. The word holy means separated. In other words, if you saw these gold cups lined up and I brought out 30 other gold cups, you'd go, I can't really tell the difference. But the difference was that the Jews had designated, because God had told them to, these are to be only for worship. That's what they're for. Don't have a party and drink out of them. They're for worship. We're called to be holy, separated out for God's purposes. Yes, you can still go to work, have a family, do whatever, play golf, whatever you like to do, go skiing. But we are supposed to be available to be used as tools in God's hand for his kingdom, however he sees fit. Okay, now that I made you feel guilty, let's move on. He says, you had these goblets brought to you and your nobles and you drank wine from them. Here comes the worst crime in the middle of verse 23. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I love this. Which, what do those gods have in common, Daniel? Those silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone gods, which cannot see or hear or understand. Why are you talking to them? Why are you praising them? Why are you praying to them? Why are you sacrificing to them? It's so dumb right? Um, uh, but you did not honor the, the God singular who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. He holds it in his hand. Therefore, he, that's God, sent the hand that wrote the inscription. He's giving in the background, and now he's saying, you see that hand? God sent that hand the fingers that wrote, okay? Here is what these words mean. Finally, we get to the words, amen? Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Um, let's see. Oh, I, I skipped verse 25. Um, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Some translations have up, parsin. The up, up just means and. Okay, so that's why it's often just written, mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Here is what these words mean. By the way, those are Aramaic words, okay? So a lot of scholars think it was written in Aramaic. They speak Aramaic. For some reason, either their eyes were prevented from understanding the words, or they didn't know the meaning, but, or they're too drunk, like we said, blurry vision. Here is what these words mean. Finally. Mene, M-E-N-E. God, Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Not it's going to end pretty soon. He's saying it's over, right? 
God has numbered the days of your reign. Meaning what? Who's sovereign? You, Belshazzar, or God? He numbered the days. By the way, he numbered your days. Do you know that? The very hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus says, I don't know how many days I have left, nor do you. We ought to use every day for his glory any way that we can and live every day to the fullest. Amen. Um, let's see. Uh, you, know, you know what I have in my notes? I'll pause and say this. If you're thinking, I wish somebody, God would write something on the wall for me. He wrote 66 books for you, right? Not, not four words, two of the same. So it's really three different words. He wrote, how many words are in the Bible? I don't know. I'm sure it's been counted by somebody. 66 books. I believe when you and I get to heaven, the thing we're going to realize, two things that we blew it on, all of us, is I should have studied the Bible no, more. I had no idea there was this much in here, A. And B, I never understood how powerful prayer really was. It was nuclear bomb power, and we just kind of used it occasionally. Bless this food, God, and bless Sue, and heal her, and help him. And I, There's people that are in prayer for hours. You know who one of them was? Jesus Christ. If he needed to pray all night sometimes, don't you and I? Okay, made you feel guilty. Let's move on. Um, by the way, the contrast is very stark here. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar here's a roof, a, a, vo a voice from outside, from heaven. Here's a voice when he's out, so outdoors. Belshazzar is indoors, sees writing, doesn't hear a voice. Very different. Um, okay. Let's keep rolling. Words and what they mean. Uh, mene, mene or mina means numbered. We already talked about that. The number of years has expired, in other words. Um, you already talked about that? Okay. It's repeated for emphasis. Numbered, numbered. Your days are numbered. Your time is up, dude, is what he's saying. The next thing Tekel, dude is not in the text. I inserted that. I apologize. Tekel, T-E-K-E-L, rhymes with a Hebrew word with the same root, which is shekel, counting, okay? It means literally weighed. They would weigh out shekels of silver or whatever. It means your days are, you've been numbered, your days are numbered, and you have been weighed on God's scales, I don't mean how much does he weigh, and found wanting, okay? God has weighed you on the scales of his justice, and you just got an F. You just failed. That's what, uh, you've been weighed on the scales, verse 17, and found wanting. Verse 28, peres, P-E-R-E-S, um, let's see, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, which is part of the root P-E-R-E-S. Notice that he's speaking in the past tense. It's already been done. And the king is still in this banquet room, totally silent, freaked out with the hand on the wall. And then the writing, as far as they know, this could be months, years off. It's hours off. Okay, because God knows what he's talking about. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Um, if you remember the, the 
gold, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, the head was of gold, that was Babylon. Do you remember the silver was the Medes and the Persians, two arms, Medes and Persians. The Persians were the more powerful ones who took control more. That's why it's P-E-R-E-S, if you will, or up parson and half shekels, broken in two, divided is what the word literally means. Um, Persia was dominant. Yeah. You've been numbered. Your days have been numbered. Your time is up. You've been weighed and found wanting. And the kingdom's going to be divided and given to Perez, the Persians. Still reading notes here. Um, yeah, that was the second kingdom. We already talked about that. Um, and they're already at the gates, as we said. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, the Babylonian Empire, if you know anything about history, like the Roman Empire, and maybe like the U.S. of A., falls from within, okay? We're rotting, the U.S. is, um, uh, morally, ethically, religiously toward our God, you know? There's a verse, I have it in the notes somewhere, I don't know where it is, um, in the Bible that says um, that the wicked hell awaits the wicked and the nations who listen forget god right the us of a you say well i live in the us of a i haven't forgotten god i i know god always has a remnant but listen is it legal to talk about jesus and god in school today in america you can get in big trouble for doing that right don't get me started okay um the bronze gates were inexplicably unlocked um, Isaiah 44 and Jeremiah 51 both say, prediction, get this, God opened the gates of the city of Babylon and he put it in writing 200 years before this occurred. You get the feeling God is sovereign. What does it take to be sovereign, a ruler? Okay. You have to be, and to be able to predict the future. Listen, Two things, not just one. You have to know the future and be omni, uh, omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful to be able to do what you said is going to happen. There's a reason why God makes over 2,000 predictions in the Old Testament. And guess what percentage he gets right? A hundred. You know why? Because not only does he see the future, he sees all of time like a parade He's outside of space and time, okay? But also he's all powerful so that if you try to thwart the plans, he can move the chess pieces of life and make his plans occur exactly the way he said. So he's never gonna be wrong. The soothsayers and the magicians and all of those that the guy had consulted, Belshazzar had consulted, remember them? The rule in Israel about predicting, about prophesying, um, is what percentage correct do your prophecies have to be? And the answer is 100. If you predict 26 things and one doesn't happen, do you know what the Old Testament says is supposed to happen to you? They're supposed to kill you, stone you to death, blindfold you, push you into a pit, and then th throw big rocks on you and kill you because you're not prophesying for God if you predict things and they don't happen. I won't go into detail because I can do that and get off on tangents, but there are evangelists, in quote, 
Christian teachers, in quotes, who have made predictions, thus saith the Lord, and they've been wrong. Good thing we're not Jewish. We would have to stone them, right? But the least we should do is not listen to them. How many know who Benny Hinn is? Benny Hinn said Fidel Castro was going to die in the 90s. God told him. Benny Hinn said God told him that God was going to kill all the homosexuals before the end of the 1990s. Wrong and wrong. You're a false prophet. Well, I got some other things right. 100% indicates you're getting it from God. Otherwise, it's coming from mankind. Okay, we digress. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. When you go home tonight, check your walls. It might be written there for you. Uh, let's see. Your kingdom is divided and given, past tense, to the Medes and the Persians. Now, this is surprising. Some despotic rulers would have had his head chopped off. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Whoop-de-doo, it's only for an hour or two anyway. He didn't want that stuff, but strangely, Belshazzar realizes, oh no, probably right. He was right before, track record, right? He's the only one that explained it, and it makes sense right? Uh, that very night, verse 30, how much time after? An hour, two hours, half an hour? I don't know. Belshazzar, king of the, Babylon, the Babylonians, was slain. And uh, Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. What a coincidence. It's no coincidence. God knows the future. You and I read Revelation, we read First and Second Thessalonians, we read Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and we read all this prophecy about the end of the world, and is this all going to go down? Yes. Just like he said, just like he said, right? He, he's always right. God knows what's going to happen. History, you ever look at that word? It almost looks like his story because he wrote it. We think we're so in control of our lives, and we're not. Um, okay, still have some time. I'm reading notes here. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, by the way, historians give us the night, that same night. Most historians think it was October 13th, 539 B.C. Belshazzar gets killed uh, in a drunken stupor. Um, the downfall of Babylon is a picture of the unbelieving world. If you read Revelation, you see there's a revived, some kind of an empire with the Antichrist, right? A one world ruler who has a big ego and a big mouth and demands worship. And you take a mark on your right hand or your forehead. Don't make me explain that now. But why are you mentioning that, Joe? Because chapters 17 and 18 talk about Babylon. You mean Babylon, Babylon? Mystery Babylon, it's called in Revelation, which is Babylon is symbolic of or emblematic of all pagan worship, all we're sovereign, not you, God type of theology, all man-made government. The ultimate man-made government is the Antichrist's very short-lived kingdom. 
uh, during the seven-year tribulation in which he takes over the whole world. In those chapters, do you know what it ends up saying? Fallen, fallen is Babylon. How many remember Saddam Hussein? Am I the only one? Okay. Ruler of Iraq, which is Babylon. Persia is Iran. Okay. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, I'm sorry, not Nebuchadnezzar. Saddam Hussein believed that he was Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated. Nebuchadnezzar wrote his, had his name engraved on every single brick of every single road and pathway and building and temple that he built. Nebuchadnezzar. Talk about an ego, right? Um, Saddam Hussein spent millions to start rebuilding Babylon with his kingdom. Interestingly enough, when we caught him, do you remember where he was? He was in a hole in the ground with a bag of Cheetos and some brand new shirts that were still in the, the cellophane wrapping. I don't know why that's pertinent, but I thought I'd mention it. Humbling, amen? He wasn't eating grass, at least. He thought he was Nebuchadnezzar. Wrong. Will Babylon be rebuilt? Some people say it will. Some people say it means the sinful world government, like we said. There are scholars that believe that the United States is Babylon. We export sin. Export it. We send it off. Pornography and... Who knows? Does God know that we're a remnant that lives in this great, once great country with Judeo-Christian roots? Absolutely. He knows we're here, right? Um, but the coming one world government is going to make you and me, Christians and Jews, public enemy number one, right? Not for anything we've done other than we worship the true God. And we refuse to bow down to any world leader, even if he says you can't buy or sell unless you worship me and take my mark, right? Like Daniel, hopefully you and I are going to say, I'm not willing to do that. I'm not willing to compromise. The difference, though, to be fair, is in Revelation 13, it says that some of the believers will be if you're destined to go into captivity, into captivity you'll go. Some of the believers, if you're destined to die by the sword, by the sword you'll go. God does not always protect people in fiery furnaces who are believers. But absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? We don't die the horrible death. It appears that we die. We are instantly transported to be with the Lord. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's no other religion that says to die is gain like Christianity does, because we believe what we just stated, but also the resurrection of the body as well. We're out of time, or just about. Um, I'm going to just pray uh, a closing prayer here, and we'll pick up um, we'll just kind of conclude chapter 5, and then we'll dive into chapter 6. Um, next week. Do invite someone, if you will, the recordings um, to get the link for them. They're different every week. You have to get the email um, after the Bible study in about an hour. I'll send it that has the notes that I teach off of, and it'll have the link to next week's, to this week's recording that you can watch. 
as I said, to my shock, people are watching it and it amazes me. Anyway, I tried, I got like two minutes in and went, oh, forget it. You, do you hate to hear your own voice like on, the, on a recording, right? Imagine seeing yourself and hearing yourself like, no, I turned it off. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word and for your spirit that teaches and leads. It certainly isn't me, God. And we pray that we as believers would never glory in our own possessions or accomplishments or wealth or position or education. All glory is yours because everything we have was given by you, the book of James. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the father of lights in whom there's no shadow or turning. May we recognize who you are, true sanity, who we are, sinners deserving judgment, but we have grace from you, who others are, people that we are to reach out to in love and spread the gospel. May we be totally humble so that we gain that wisdom. Um, and Father, we know that worldly kingdoms come and go, and whether we are thrilled or bummed out about who's running the United States of America, how comforting to know that you are not in heaven saying, who won? Instead, you know exactly what you're doing. And if this is what needs to happen for the end to come in a year, five years, 20 years, 150 years, then you're moving the pieces as they should be. We know that you'll use us for your glory as you did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even behind enemy lines. Thank you for these truths, God. It's so comforting to know you're in control. May we pray without ceasing. Study your word, Father, that writing not on a wall, but in a book that you gave us. Thank you for these truths, God. May they change the way we live. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Those of you that are here, those of you on Zoom, I'll hopefully see you next week. I'm going to turn my screen off here. I can't come back on afterwards because I'm going to talk to the people that are here, but we'll see you next week. Thank you for being here.